All right, if you got a Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and full disclosure, uh, Aaron is trying to go through basically a chapter a week, uh, which for him is a stretch because he's used to going slower. And for me, it's a stretch because I'm used to going faster. And so uh, we'll see. Uh, we may wrap up in 20 minutes and say that was good. And uh, if it is, that's cool too. But, uh, you know, so last week... One of the things that Aaron was just emphasizing is as we're getting into Genesis, where we start with the scripture matters and where we are approaching the word from is going to have an impact and and starting points matter. And I was thinking about it this week because, uh, you know, I came to Thailand on a plane. I flew 12,000 miles, 12 time zones, went Seattle, Taipei, Chiang Mai, the moons picked me up, we went to lunch. And went to where I'm staying. And had they made a wrong turn between lunch and where I was staying, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. We would have made a U-turn, probably, you know, would have hopefully not killed anybody, and we would have gotten back where we were on where we were going. If the pilot in Indianapolis had made a wrong turn out of the runway, then I don't know where I'd be in 30 hours of travel time, but it wouldn't be Chiang Mai, right? And and to make an error at the beginning of uh, of a train of thought, to make an error at the beginning of a journey, whether it's physical or just mental, is going to have major ramifications, much bigger ramifications than if you make a slip up later on. So starting points matter. That's why Genesis is so important. And so that's kind of where we're going with this book. And, and you know, this church, we hold that, uh, that the Word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to actually pierce to the human soul. It's able to cut to your, your inner being. And so we believe that a God who can write that book that's that powerful can write it accurately and can uh, describe what happened as an authoritative source. And so last week, Aaron, you know, chapter 1, he went into chapter 2 a little bit, but he started out chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he made the point that's super important, which is if you can accept that verse you can accept really anything else in the rest of the Bible, right? If you can say, okay, I can grasp, I can believe that God is capable, that he has the power to create heaven and earth, then nothing else is really that big of a stretch, right? Uh, if you can't grasp that, if you, if you get hung up right there, then you're going to have to really stretch yourself to grasp anything else in, the, in this book. And so, chapter 1, we get the seven days of creation. God's creating the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. And it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So chapter 2, what we're going to do Basically, the narrative is going to just step back and give us more detail. This isn't like a different account from chapter one. It's like any book or story uh, or movie where it opens with a scene and then it goes back to give you more detail, to let you better understand it. So chapter two is just giving us a little more context. But verse four, you've got to notice, what does it say? This is the history. This is the history. The Hebrew word could translate literally, this is the generations. Okay, This is like the telling. This is the fact of the heavens and the earth. And 
just like in chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to have to stop here. Because either this is the history, or it isn't. And if it is the history, then everything that goes on from here, we can accept. We can say, okay, a God who can describe this accurately can do this. If it's not the history, if you can't accept that it's the history that God is giving us, then the problem is, what you've just done is, well, I have the wisdom to discern when God is telling the truth and when He's stretching. When He's you know, maybe well-intentioned, but really this is just a myth. It's a, it's a creation legend. There's thousands of them all over the world. This one is just one of them. If you are stuck there, then what you've done is you've just put yourself in the position of God. You've said, I have the authority, I have the wisdom to determine which parts of the Bible are relevant, which parts of them are actually true, which parts apply to me. And if you slip into that, then you'll never be in a position where the Holy Spirit can convict you and say, you're wrong, you're walking in error, you're walking in falsehood, because you're going to be able to say, well, no, that's actually not the voice of God, because, see, I know when the Word of God is speaking accurately and when it's not. And so if you, can't, if you get stuck on the history, it, you need to stop right there and get stuck and decide, can we move forward? Can we say this is the history? And so we're going to go with that assumption that this is the history, that God understands what He's talking about, and that he's got the capability to write this down accurately. And so we're getting just some details of the garden. Uh, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Go back, if you would, chapter 1, verse 25. And it says, And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So we're getting the detail, right? Chapter 2 is going back. It's just layering it for us a little better. Um, but the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into him the breath of life. He's, he's made in the image of God. And we're gonna, it's an important point because we're going to get into it more as we get into the, the creation of Eve. But Adam's a distinct creature, right? Animals have a physical body, and they have what really is not a rational... They have a, an ability to process information, but they don't have a rational intellect, okay? Angels have a soul and a, and a mind, but they don't have a physical body, Right? And so humanity is this really interesting blend where we have a body, a soul, and a spirit. We have a, a physical reality, a mental reality where we can understand and comprehend things, and a soul that has an eternal element to it. And so we've got man created in the image of God, and we've got to kind of back up and say, well, why? And broadly speaking, God, why did God create humanity? God created humanity so we could experience relationship with him, right? He did, I mean, everything that happens here in Genesis is for the glory of God, okay? The chief end of creation is that God delights in glory. He's holy enough that he can say, I want to do this, and, and it's going to glorify me, and it's going to be great. But why humanity? Because he wanted us to be able to experience relationship, all right? And so we're going to go on. It's going to be an important point, so chuck it in the back of your mind. Verse 8, we're going to read verse 8 through 14. It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittical. Some of your translations will say Tigris. Uh, it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. And so again, we're just getting some details about the Garden of Eden. We're given the location of four rivers. You can't map these out today and find the Garden of Eden. These were all changed during the flood. Um, we still have today what we know as the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Noah would have come out of the ark and said, you know, there's a point at which the whole world has changed, but we like naming things after something we're familiar with, right? We have New York and we have New Jersey because there's an old York and an old Jersey. And so same idea, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates that we have now are probably not the same riverbeds, but they were familiar. And so we went with the names. Um, so we're just getting a little bit of detail. Here's the Garden of Eden. Here's where it's at. Here's kind of just how it looks. There's gold here. There's all kinds of great things here. And then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's a couple things here. Okay, first of all, work is part of the creation order. And we, we can forget that, right? We can have this, like, what is your ideal life? And this idea is, well, it's not having to work. But imperfection, in the garden, in, in the most perfect state that humanity has ever existed, humanity had a job. God said, you tend the garden. And it, it was, in a sense, a different kind of work than would happen after the fall. God will elaborate on that in chapter 3. But work is part of God's order. God did not create us for laziness. He created us to work for the glory of God. And, and we see this idea. We're going to see the things that God gives us to do reflect the character and the nature of God. God delights in work. He delighted in creating the world for his glory. And he put in us that same desire to work, that desire to create things for the glory of God. Because we're in the image of God. And when we do something on a small scale, on a human level, it's not this is God doing it. It's This is a picture. This is a... This is basically a living metaphor of in the way that I delight to make something, in the way that I can delight in work, God delights in work. And we're going to see just over and over and over throughout the scriptures, that's what we have. We'll get into the, by the end of the chapter today. Marriage is a picture. It's a living metaphor that God gives us for, hey, in the same way that a man is supposed to love his wife, that's the picture for how God loves you. In the same way that a wife responds to her husband, that's the picture of how the church responds to Jesus Christ. And so we see these. We're just getting some of the early ones here in Genesis. But also, notice that there is, there's two rules. He says, you know, basically in chapter 1, he says, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Chapter 2, he says, you can eat whatever you want, except for this tree right here, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, we're going to read next week, chapter 3, Adam and Eve are going to what? They're going to take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They're going to have that awareness of evil, and that's going to bring death into the world. But think about, okay, you know, you could say, well, why, why the rules, right? And, and there's a couple of things there. One, why does God give the option in the first place? Because God wants love to be a choice, right? It's never forced. If it's forced, it's not love. If it's love, it's not forced. 
And so God is giving the option. You have the ability right here, Adam, to either walk in what I'm inviting you to or to choose a different path. But also think about the fact that he says you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this one. And I think we forget sometimes that God's gifts vastly outweigh his rules, right? And and we can zero in on, I am not allowed to eat this fruit, this tree. Look at this tree. I mean, just look at the way it's shaped. Look at the fruit. Look at how juicy it is. And And you find ourselves like salivating, sitting under the tree, thinking about it, and losing sight of the fact that there's an entire garden. And the garden happens to be in the midst of an entire planet. And all of these, every other single tree, every other single piece of fruit in the entire planet is yours for the taking. And we can zero in sometimes on like, well, why doesn't God let us do this? Why does the Bible say this is wrong? Why is, why is this supposed to be off limits for a Christian? And we forget, hold on a second, look at the gifts that God is all opening up to us, right? And we have this idea, I've been chewing on this a lot lately, we have this idea that holiness equates to like stiff, right? If I were to describe a person to you and I said, oh, that guy is holy, it's code for that guy is boring, right? We, we, like, we, you know, we maybe don't verbalize it, but deep down we know like really holy people are boring. But holiness isn't supposed to be that. Holiness is, you know, it's like it's you being in the most perfect position that you were created to fulfill. And so there's more joy in holiness than any other form of existence, right? Holiness is not less life. It's such an abundance that the things that we kind of cover up as a facade here aren't necessary. And so God's gifts always outweigh his rules, but he's still giving the option. Adam's still going to have the choice. He's still going to have the ability to say, okay, do I choose to look at the gifts of God and rejoice in them, or do I choose to focus on the things that God has put in place for my protection? Do I choose to focus on the things that I'm not allowed to do? Or can I instead look at, here's the gifts of God. And if we can remember that, just in life in general, right? G.K. Chesterton said we should handle the gifts of God like explosives because they're so powerful and we forget them. He said, and, you know, he said, look, the argument that God isn't fair for saying that you can only have one wife instead of a harem forgets the fact that God uh, lets you have a wife at all. Forgets the fact that God granted you any form of a gift, right? And not, and how much less just a depth of relation, uh, relationship that you can have with a wife. And to say, well, it's not fair because I can only have one. Well, wait a second. You're right. It's not fair. God did not have to give you anything. And his gifts are vastly superior to the rules he puts in place. And we have the choice in this, just like Adam did. What are we going to look at? Which tree are we going to find ourselves under? Right? Where are we going to let the temptation pull us? And is it going to force us into looking at, well, here's what God doesn't let me do. Or, you know what? Okay, but look at what God does. Look at what God brings into my life. Look at the depth that's there. So verse 18, we're going to move on. He says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So we said at the beginning, God created humanity 
for a relationship, right? For a for an interaction. He wanted us to be able to interact with him. And it's different than the way angels interact with God. It's different than the way animals interact with anything. Uh, it's a very special and unique relationship. And so God, as he's doing this, says, I don't want Adam to be alone. And we can read this and say, well, wait a second, you know, it is, it's not good, so God made a mistake. No, 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 none of that. God says, I'm going to basically expand what I've done. Okay, it's, I don't want this man to be alone. I want him to have a tangible reminder of the relationship that he gets to have with me. And so first what he does is he brings the animals. Adam gets a chance to watch the animals come by. He gets a chance to name them, to recognize, hey, I am over these. I've been given you know, the charge, the stewardship of all these animals, but they are not like me. Right? They're, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, they're, they're great, but they're not like me. I'm something distinct from this. And so God's getting ready to, to establish, hey, here's a partner for you to have a relationship with. Bear in mind, it's not this. It's not just a, you know, hey, I'm physically similar to this animal. No, no. There's something else that's going to happen here, Adam. And he wants to, he's setting that stage like a, you know, like a good, like a good film script. Okay, you see, here's, we got close. Oh, you know, maybe these, no, not this one, not that, not that animal. Um, you know, there's all kinds of wonderful things here. And there are animals that can be tools, animals that can be work animals, they can provide, you know, food. But they're not, they're not comparable. They're not a, you know, they can help, but they're not a helper. They're not a companion in a full sense. And so, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So what do you have? Okay, uh, New King James, New King James Version says uh, God took one of his ribs. It's not necessarily the best translation. The idea is more that from his side, God basically divided from Adam something and formed a woman out of it. Okay, he didn't create Eve out of the earth. Eve isn't, you know, try number two. Uh, experiment 2A or whatever. No, no. From Adam, from the completeness that Adam was, because Adam was perfectly made, God divides into two things, male and female. And with that, there's now a picture of, hey, there's a depth of relationship that happens when they come together. It's a picture of the depth of relationship that happens when we are in fellowship with God. And so I think... Uh, you could say it's a little bit speculation, but I think it's very real that Adam probably woke up and felt different, right? He had way less feelings. And he's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm not feeling these things. If you ask me how I'm doing now, I'd just be like, eh. you know, I, I can communicate in grunts now. Uh, I can, you know, I, I've got a desire to conquer things. I've got a drive that I didn't have before. And now there's this woman. And it, there's a division that happens not because Adam was incomplete, but because God wanted a picture of relationship. And so, you know, it's, we look at this and some people get super whacked out on, you know, well, she's taken from his side, whatever. Basically, here's the deal. He wasn't taken from his head. Women are not over men. She wasn't taken from his foot. They're not under men. She was taken from his side, right? Women are an incredible compliment to come alongside in a relationship with a man and a woman there's a unity, there's a fullness that happens there. And 
You know, this is one of those verses where I'm admittedly out of my depth. I'm a single guy. I can't vouch for it on a first-hand basis. But here's the deal. It's a reality that the Word of God gives us, right? That there's a, that God invented marriage because he thought it was a great idea. And it's a great thing. And, and with that, you know, marriage is, is we got to remember, basically, God brought all the animals along to make sure Adam understood, okay, look, this is not just a physical thing. I need there to be a, a depth here. And so what do we have? We have verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they weren't ashamed. So the creation of Eve was not to satisfy a physical need that Adam had. It was to satisfy a depth of relationship, right? And God, in his wisdom, created, as he, in the division of Adam, okay, created a partner who was comparable physically, mentally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, right? Adam is not just getting to take one of those elements. He gets to take a woman formed from the same, you know, formed from him, still bearing the image of God, right? This is, and this is why marriage is a wonderful thing when it's done appropriately, right? When marriages exist on a physical basis and there's nothing there to back up the emotional or the spiritual side, there's a, there's a loss that happens because what you don't have now is the man and the woman coming together as a symbol of the relationship with Christ. And if, if you've basically divorced it from the relationship with Christ, then what you have is distorted. And when you distort the creation of God, you wind up with problems. And so this is just the idea here is, you know what? Okay, she's created from his side. Men and women have different roles. They have different callings. They have different gifts. And when they're joined together, they become a unit for God's glory. And then he says, okay, look, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, be joined to his wife. They're supposed to be bonded together physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. They're supposed to be a team unit, right? To come together and sort of rejoin what God separated as a symbol, as a picture of the love of God for us, right? We're created for a relationship with God. And as part of that, God created us with a need for a relationship. And so it's weird, it's weird acknowledging that as a single person, okay? But it doesn't change. So there's a couple things we have to kind of keep in mind, uh, especially as New Testament Christians. And that is that to not be married is not to be incomplete, necessarily. Okay? We have, you know, John tells us, John, Acts, Galatians, uh, we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is what makes us complete. Another person will not make you complete in and of themselves. A person uh, united with you in serving the Spirit of God is a great thing. So being single does not make you incomplete if it's, uh, if it's what God is bringing you to, if it's the season that he's got you in. If you're single because you're lazy, well, get over it. If you're single because you're spiritually mature, grow up. If you're single because you recognize that I'm going to be joined to this person in a very multifaceted, multi-layered way, and I don't want to rush into one element of that relationship and ignore the others, 
then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with waiting and having high standards and saying, I believe that there's a depth here uh, that I want to experience and I don't want to waste it by jumping on something prematurely. And so there's, there's wisdom in that. Um, but marriage is, so, you know, it's just one of those things we have to acknowledge as, as Christians. Marriage is a wonderful thing. It's not the only thing. It's a great thing. It's not the great thing, right? The great thing is relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have a wife, or if you are a woman and you have a husband, it can be a great means of helping you grow in that relationship. If you're a single person, it doesn't mean you're incapable of growing in that relationship. It just means that there's going to be different challenges and there's going to be different blessings, right? If you have a wife, it's going to be a little easier to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit because it will have a verbal voice sometimes. If you're a single person, you've got to kind of really listen and, and try and hear the voice of God, and that can be challenging. But here's, but basically, we're created for relationship. And so marriage is given to us as a picture, as a symbol of what God intends for us to have with Him. And if we experience marriage as part of experiencing the relationship with Christ, it's a wonderful thing. If we don't, that's fine too, in the appropriate context, if it's what God is leading us to, if it's the season of life we're in. But then just lastly, it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they weren't ashamed. You know, it's a weird passage for us because we're so visually driven. Um, and, and to just hear the idea of, well, they're both naked, it's hard for us to take that in any form other than like a sexualized context. But we've we got to remember this is in the context of perfection. And so this isn't some sort of like, you know, this isn't like a nudist colony. This is, no, there's, there's nothing to hide. There's no shame in who they are. Right? There's nothing to be embarrassed because they have no secrets. They have no lies. There's nothing that they're hoping the other one won't discover about their past or about who they are or what they think because they're in fellowship with God and they're in fellowship with one another. And so there's, it's basically, you know, it's, it's transcending sexuality. It's not falling down to sexuality when it's describing them being naked. But yeah, that's Genesis 2, okay? We've got a history that we're given. And we're reminded through it that we're created for relationship. And that as part of that, God has given marriage as a picture of the fact that he's given his spirit. Right? Whether or not we're ever physically married, the Bible still refers to us as the bride of Christ. So we are, in a real sense, married. Right? And so that's where we go. So we've got the relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is sufficient. We were made to know God in a personal way. And he gives us gifts. He gives us interactions and that fellowship to lead us to that. But the relationship with God is still supremely the high point. It's what we are striving after. So I think at this point, we'll just break into groups, pray, and go from there.